No wrath on his brow he does wear, nor will he poor sinners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. His arm is able and willing to save us from our sins. We come now to the time of the preaching of God's Word. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 3, if you'd turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be in verse 17 and read to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to even even subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Father in heaven, we come to your word to ask that you would speak to us. Father, open our hearts to receive your truth that is proclaimed in your word. Protect our hearts from the lies, the deception of Satan in this time. Protect ourselves from the lies and deception of our own hearts. Through your Holy Spirit, overcome our wickedness and blindness. And may we see wondrous things out of your law. May we see your glory that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. The title for our text this morning is Heavenly Mindedness. I wonder if you ever heard this phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. I wonder if you've heard that phrase. I have. I've heard people say that before. And often, at times, that is meant as an insult. It's meant to correct a person who thinks of nothing around them. And there is times where I feel like that may be appropriate, that sometimes people think that they're so holy they cannot approach and deal with normal people like you and I, that they seem to distance themselves. And I think that's often what is intended by that. But this passage that we have this morning, I think, confronts that phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Is it possible to be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good? Is that a possible thing? Can you think so intently on heaven? Can you think so intently on the things above that you're not useful to this world? Well, I would like to challenge that and challenge you this morning that, in fact, the way to be most good and useful in this world is to be most heavenly-minded. That's what Paul sets out here 
in this passage. It is a continuation of this call to know Jesus Christ. And Paul continued in verse 12, we saw last week, of wanting to know Jesus Christ even more intimately throughout his whole life so that one day he could obtain the resurrection of the dead so that he could know Jesus Christ perfectly. And that is the call for us to seek Jesus Christ who is at heaven above, in heaven above. And I'd like to see that theme running through this passage in a couple of ways. First is we have an invitation to imitate Jesus, a form of heavenly mindedness that we are called to. But if we are called to this heavenly mind, we are also told not to reject Jesus, our second point this morning, a warning not to reject Jesus. But thirdly, the hope, the hope that we have as we wait for Jesus. So first, the invitation to imitate Jesus. You may say, Pastor Nate, how did you get Jesus out of this when Paul says, imitate me? That's a great question. I will get there. But let us journey to that point. Paul tells us and tells the Philippians, join in imitating me. Why does Paul set himself as an example? Well, most importantly, Jesus Christ is in heaven. You and I cannot see Jesus with our physical eyes. He is not here present among us in his physical body asking us to imitate him right now. He is physically in heaven. And so we don't see him, so we need godly examples that show us what Jesus is like, how Jesus lived in his life. What's important for this is how we think about Christian growth. How do you think about Christian growth? How do you think about growing in the Christian life? What are the things that you turn to that other people point to you of how you can grow as a Christian? Paul is telling the Philippians, imitate me, live like me. What's important is to understand how Paul thinks about your Christian growth and our Christian growth. That God uses means. God uses means. There are many Christian books, teachers, And more that will tell you that you need to have some kind of immediate encounter with God in order to have a truly transformed life. You must have this definitive one-time moment that you can point to in your life where God transformed and changed you into a new person. Now that is a good thing, to have a moment in your life where you can point to and say, yes, God saved me. I remember the moment in my life when God changed me. He opened my eyes to the gospel, and he gave me a hatred of sin. And I wanted to pursue after living for God and being righteous and living before him. But that's not necessarily what Paul is presenting to us. For him, Christian growth is using means. It's not this immediate encounter with God where we go off by ourselves and meditate, and all of a sudden God transforms us. No, Paul says, look at me. Follow me. Live by my example. I will show you by my life how to live the Christian life. Paul points to his own life as the path to follow. But what is it in particular that Paul is telling them to imitate? He says, imitate me, but what are we supposed to imitate? There's a lot of things that we could look to in Scripture 
about what we're supposed to imitate. Even the book of Philippians tells us many ways to imitate Christ. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. How are we to grow and progress in the Christian life? Well, most importantly, I believe what Paul is calling all of us to imitate, how we are to imitate the Apostle Paul, is ultimately how we are to imitate Jesus Christ. And we see that back in verse 10 of chapter 3. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what Paul wants to do. He wants to share in Christ's sufferings. He wants to become like Jesus Christ in his death. And continually throughout Paul's letters, the way that Paul sets himself out as an example is one who shares in Christ's sufferings and is becoming like Jesus Christ in his death. Paul does not set out his own righteousness, his own good works, as the thing that needs to be imitated in his life. The example that Paul continually sets out throughout his letters in the New Testament, and I believe what he is pointing to here, is of his weakness and suffering for the sake of Christ. That we are called to imitate Paul as one who suffers for Jesus Christ. Whenever Paul speaks of his own life, he speaks of weakness. Anything good, he speaks of weakness in his own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 speaks to this very fact. If you want to turn with me there, you can. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Paul is speaking of these so-called super apostles that are comparing themselves to Paul. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul sets his own life out not as one of glory, but as one who suffers in all the various ways before him. He suffers for Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting in 2 Corinthians, what Paul goes on to next, is he could have an opportunity to boast of having an immediate encounter with God. He had one of these. He actually tells us in chapter 12 that he knows a man who was caught up 14 years before into the third heaven. Now, Paul is speaking in third person here. He doesn't even want to speak about himself as if he says, I was taken up. He says, I know a man who was taken up to the third heaven and saw things that I cannot utter. 
And he says, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should be wish to boast, I would not be a fool. This is verse 6 of chapter 12. For I would be speaking the truth, but I will refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me, given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from be, being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I believe that this is what Paul is pointing to when he says, imitate me. Imitate me as a fellow sufferer for Christ. We want a glorious, victorious life so often as we walk the Christian life. And Paul is saying, that will come. Glory will indeed come. But this life that Jesus Christ has called us to is one of sharing in his sufferings and being conformed to his death. We need godly examples of people willing to die to themselves and suffer for the sake of Christ. These are people that we need. There are wonderful stories in Christian history of those who have done this. There are people that I'm sure that you know and look to in your life as examples who do that. We need them. And Paul adds an interesting note on this, about this. He says, not only imitate me, but also those, those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul speaks here of our mutual dependence on one another. We need each other. You need each other in this church. You need your fellow Christians as examples to you of how to walk this Christian life. You cannot disconnect yourself from this church. We will hear about those who do in a few moments. But you need those as well who walk according to the example. And look to them. Talk with them. Encourage them. This is what we need in our lives. Examples of godliness of those who share in the sufferings of Christ. But as soon as Paul speaks of our looking at those who walk according to the pattern of Christ, to imitate him, he also now turns to those who have rejected that. And now we hear our warning not to reject Jesus. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are those who have looked away to the world. They have taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ and looked to this world for their hope. This is the saddest commentary I've almost heard in the New Testament on people who turn away from Christ. Paul says this word, and it struck me as I prepared this message. He says, For there, for many, many, 
There are many who now walk as any enemies of the cross of Christ. It is a sobering remark to us that many people, that the Apostle Paul had probably walked through a Christian life with, had now turned against the cross of Christ. And think about this. They saw the Apostle Paul. They walked in ministry with him. They were likely those who made a profession of faith. Yet even when they had the apostolic ministry going on around them, even though they had seen so much work for the gospel occur, even though they saw miracles performed, yet they turned away from it, many of them, and became enemies of the cross. And Christian, this is a call to us, that you cannot be proud in your Christian life. We cannot depend on whatever goodness God has brought about in us. It is only by grace that we are saved. And it is only by grace that we will be led home to heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. And it's no wonder that Paul was moved to tears. He saw many people. These are people I'm sure that he loved and he cared for. And he watched them again and again turn against Jesus Christ in their lives. Maybe you have felt this in your own life, seeing friends, family, fellow church members walk away from the Lord, give themselves over to their own life, their own desires. And Paul describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. He describes them as enemies of the cross, How are they enemies of the cross? Are they persecuting Christians? I believe that here this is the inverse example of what Paul is setting himself out as. Example of one who suffers for the cross of Christ. They are those who are enemies of the sufferings of Christ. They do not want to become like Jesus Christ in his death. They do not want to die to themselves. These are people who do not want to suffer for the sake of Christ. They hate the cross. They hate what it stands for. That Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Instead of dying to themselves, they are opposed to the cross. You call them to repentance and they tell you, I do not need to repent. I do not need to change my life. Instead, they seek the world and Paul tells us, the nature of these people next. He says their end is destruction. As we heard from Proverbs this morning, the end of the wicked is destruction. And here Paul is echoing that very truth. Their life will cease. This is the path of sin. Pursuing it to its ultimate end is its end. It ends. Whatever life you have now here, if you are living for yourself and for your sin and not following Christ, your life will end. And it will end in destruction. It will end in eternal destruction, eternal death. And though as we confess today from our our catechism, that they will one day be raised from the dead their bodies, but it will just be a further eternal death for them. 
One thinks of Jesus' words, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For those who turn away from Christ and turn against the cross, the warning is clear. The only thing that awaits you is judgment and destruction. There will be no hope, no joy, no happiness, but only judgment and wrath for those who reject Jesus Christ. Then he describes their God, their end, now their God. He says their belly. It's an appetite or a craving. Maybe that reminds you, as it reminded me of Numbers chapter 11, when the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness complain to God because they're hungry. They're tired of eating what God has provided for them, manna. This simple seed, it's a burnt orange color and looks like a grain of sand. They got tired of eating it. And they complained and wanted good food. They wanted meat. And they cry out to God and say, and cry out to Moses and say that they would have rather remained in Egypt where life was better, living as a slave. But at least they could eat fish. That as they tell them, as they tell Moses, it cost them nothing. They were slaves, but their slave master would feed them. They would eat cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. I love onions and garlic. Their God was their belly. And there is nothing wrong with cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. These are wonderful gifts that God has given to us. The problem is with our desire for the things of this world. That we, don't be, we are not content with what God has provided for us. That we want our own evil desires, no matter what it costs. And our sinful nature continually demands its desires to be fulfilled. But there's something ironic about the nature of this God as a belly. It does not have to look like gratifying the more sensual pleasures of the flesh. Self-satisfaction can take even its opposite form in Scripture. Asceticism is its own form of self-gratification. Where you say, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm not going to eat food. I'm going to be severe with my own body. As if that is a higher form of spirituality. Colossians chapter 2 verse 23 says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There are many ways that we can indulge our human appetites and desires and give ourselves over to the sinful nature. It can look like giving ourselves over to pleasure. It can also look like being severe with our bodies. Either way, our God is ourselves, our God is our belly. Lastly, Paul says their glory is their shame. The irony here is that the very thing they consider shameful, the cross, is the one thing that would bring glory to them. And the very thing that they glory in is their shame. 
There's sin. It's the ultimate description of a life of sin. Giving themselves over to it. We think that we are covering ourselves with life, with happiness, with joy, with peace, security, and pleasure. Instead, we are covering ourselves with sin and shame. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, God is leveling his judgment against Israel. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. A description of those whose glory is their shame. Now Paul gives his fullest description of these people. Their mind is set on earthly things. It is the opposite of heavenly mindedness. You're so earthly minded, you're of no heavenly good. My question to us is, do you think your life can be found on this earth, ultimately? Yes, there is joy to be found. There is happiness. There are good things to be found in this earth. But is this where your life is to be found? That is the deception that all mankind is under. They think their life consists in this world. They do not know that they are lost in sin and under the wrath and judgment of God. The whole world will one day be wiped away. And a new heaven and a new earth will come. But they want this world now, no matter what it costs. It is a sad, sobering description that Paul gives us of those who turn away from the cross of Christ because they are unwilling to suffer. But there is hope for us today. There is hope for us who wait for Jesus. Paul says, in essence, this is not so of you, Christian. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. What's fascinating is that Paul does not say your citizenship will be in heaven. You will one day become citizens of heaven. He says, no, our citizenship is in heaven. Christian, you already belong to heaven. Your name is written down in the book of life. You are on the rolls of heaven. This is not something that you need to secure by your own work or effort. This is something that only God has secured by His work. And it is a gift to you that He gives, that He writes your name in His book. It is the hope of a royal kingdom coming to us. Yes, there is much good in this world, but there is far greater happiness and joy that will be in heaven. Now the pathway to that leads through suffering. But there is a royal kingdom coming when Christ will bring you in. And that is why we call others to come. We are not trying to transform this world into the kingdom of Christ. We are calling others to that kingdom. We say, turn from the kingdoms of this world and believe in Jesus Christ. Hope in His kingdom. It is coming. It will one day be here. He will reveal it. And it will be glorious. 
And we call others because we have been called ourselves. But the focus of this verse that Paul writes, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. The focus of verse 20 and 21 is this waiting for a savior. In this life now, we are waiting. It is a time where we have to be patient. But we do have a savior. We have a savior. And he is in heaven. And he is coming. And he will save us. And not only will he save us, but he will transform us. He will change us. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What's interesting is Paul is playing with words here. The word form, where we get our word morph, is used several times throughout the book of Philippians. We see it in chapter 2, where it says that Jesus, or the Son of God, was in the form of God. But then up in verse 10, it says, becoming like him in his death. Some translations translate that word becoming like him as being conformed. Now in this life, we are being conformed to Jesus' death. But here now Paul tells us we are being, we will be transformed into Jesus' Christ's glorious body. And this is the hope for you and I today. That whatever sufferings we endure, whatever sorrow we face, that Christ will transform us into gloriousness. We will be transformed to be like Christ. There's something important for us today as we navigate in a world that is so confused about the human body. We don't reject the human body. We don't ignore it. We don't treat it like it is this throwaway thing that we just do with it whatever we want. This world is bound up in old philosophical ways of thinking. Maybe you know this of platonic thought, that the world around us is just an appearance. It's not the real thing. It's not the substance. There's this real thing out there, the spiritual world or the phenomenal world. That they say, this physical body is not what's most real. And so that makes them willing to say, I can do with my body whatever I want to do. I can shape it however I want to shape it. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It's just simply a thing that's here, but what's really important is what's going on in my mind. Paul is affirming something radically different here. Your human body is tremendously important. In fact, your body is so important that Jesus is going to raise it up and transform it into something glorious. He is going to preserve it. As our confession, as we confess today, that our bodies, even when they're in the grave, are united to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus does not discard our bodies as if they are just this useless, unimportant thing that we have for a time being. And he affirms this by coming down and being born in a human body. He shows that our bodies are important and they will one day be transformed for those who rest and trust in him. But Paul ends his passage here with an encouragement. Not only the hope, but the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. He heaps up five different phrases for his love for those who belong to the church. He calls them brothers. He tells them he loves them. He tells them he longs for them. He tells them they are his joy and his crown. And Paul can say this about the Philippians because this is precisely how Jesus thinks of Paul. Paul says, I love this church. I love these churches. They're my joy. I long for them. Because Paul knows this is the way that Jesus thinks about me. He loves me. He longs for me. I am his joy and I am his crown. I am the thing that Jesus holds up to show off to all of creation. That is the hope that you, Christian, today have in Jesus Christ. That you are his brother. You are his family member. You are his beloved. He longs for you. You are his joy and you are his crown. There are sobering consequences to rejecting Christ. But there is beautiful hope for finding your life in Jesus Christ. So find your hope in him. Remember who Jesus Christ is for you and what he thinks about you and what you believe. And let that heavenly mindedness shape the way you live this life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of, at your right hand even now. Lord, turn our eyes to heaven always and fill us with the hope of resurrection and life that you will bring to us in the end. Father, we thank you uh, for these words that you've given to us, and we pray that you would apply them to our hearts to understand the consequence of sin and pursuing our own sinful desires. But Lord, foster in us a desire for heaven, for the glories that will be revealed to us when Christ returns, to save us and to raise us to be with him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.